After you drop off the kids or put them to bed, turn on Childish with real-life friends and podcasting virtuosos Greg Fitzsimmons and Allison Rosen. Laugh about the struggles and joys of parenthood. Grow closer to your children. Learn something useful or not. Maybe feel less alone. And maybe even put the spark back into your love life. Childish is for people who are parents or had parents if you had no parents, maybe check out WTF with Mark Marin. Subscribe to Childish. New episodes coming soon wherever you listen to podcasts. Childish, oh shit. Last time I checked, I was still a kid. Childish, childish. This all freaks me out a bit. Childish, oh shit. How can I pet when I'm still a kid? Childish, oh shit. Hey everyone, hi, hello, welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is Your New Best Friend. I'm sitting here with writer, actor, producer, comedian, a true quadruple threat, Gabe Liedman. He has written for Broad City, Pen15, the Golden Globes, which in my writing for a second, it looked like Golden Girls. And I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> Not that, I mean, the Golden Globes, I wish, I yeah, wish. get out of here, Golden Girls. This is the Golden Globes. Transparent, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Kroll Show, Inside Amy Schumer. He has a Comedy Central special and an album called Hi Yi. Hi. I love that. Uh, and just before we turned on the mics, we were talking about the fact that he is um, producing a podcast with his husband who also was named Daniel. Gotta have a husband named Daniel to Everyone, be in the business. Two-thirds of the people at this table have husbands named Daniel. <laughs> Tony Thaxton, producer, is here. Hello. You've yet to marry someone named Daniel. I could I could see if my wife could change her name. <laughs> she that would be open to it. That yeah. would be excellent. Right. Uh, a podcast called I'm Afraid That, and we'll get into that. And you were just in deadline, so we'll get into that, too. Oh, Hello, baby. and Hi. welcome. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for coming. I have followed you on Twitter for years, um, and I've known who you are for years because you d did that show, which you still occasionally do, Big Terrific. Yes. Yeah. Um, me, Jenny Slate, Max Silvestri. It's like a, just a stand-up show with the three of us that we started back when we were grungy Brooklynites. <laughs> um, it was like a weekly stand-up showcase every week, free, in the back of a dive bar. Which, because I lived in New York, which is when, where I originally knew about it. Right, so it was where that was it? It's, it was at Rafifi, mm -hmm. and then when that closed, we were part of the Brooklyn diaspora or whatever, and we had like about <laughs> three different venues all in Williamsburg. There was a um, Sound Fix, mm -hmm. was this little record shop with a coffee place in the back, and then Cameo, which was like a weird, bad restaurant with a giant rock venue in the back. So it was kind of like a standing room indie experience. Right. Yeah. right. What year did you move here? LA? I moved here in 2013. Okay. Um, so let's talk about Deadline. Okay. Let's talk about the project. And then let's talk about, actually, I guess we're going to start with talking about my very petty question, which yes. is, so for anyone who, for people who don't know, Deadline is, uh, it's like showbiz news. Yeah. Very insider each. It's a, tr it's considered one of the trades. Yeah. It's one of the trades. It's got to be the most boring thing <laughs> to anyone who's not reading it, you know, looking for, if, if you're, if you're not interested in the 
actual boring inner workings of Hollywood, it must be the worst website in <laughs> right, the world. Right, right. Yeah, there's, it's not juicy. It's just like so-and-so like is an represented by... Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, <clears throat> so my question is, do you now, now that you've been in deadline with the uh-huh. news that you sold a show, yeah. are you like, take that, anyone who ever doubted me? Because to me, it, this is it's like the digital dream it's the digital version of the dream I have of like one day someone who ever doubted me will be standing there and like a bus will go by with my picture on it. Absolutely. 100%. Okay. Yes, 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 yes. The other thing is like, I knew it was coming and there was this sort of secondary gray area fear where I was like, are they going to mention me? Mm. Are they going to put a picture of me? Are they going to say what my, you know, like, is it all going to be about the other producers who are a bit more famous? It's Sean Hayes and Mike Schur. And um, I just was like that. So that was actually the feeling I had when it was like it said my name. I was like, oh, wow. Just relief that you're included. Yeah, Yeah, I'm included. Yeah, that's what it felt like. Right. Um, And it's funny. It's like the news. It's so exciting. It came out. The news of it came out yesterday. I actually sold it like in December. And I've been writing it. An animated show called Q-Force. Yes. Yes? It's an animated show, Q-Force. It's sort of like a queer reimagining of the James Bond universe, Mm -hmm. like with the boss and the gadgets and, you know, just all the espionage and sex and exciting high stakes and international intrigue and stuff. But the entire ensemble is queer, like gay, trans, Mm -hmm. lesbian, everything. Very cool. And uh, it's going to be on Netflix. It's going to be on Netflix. Yeah. They've ordered 10 episodes and I'm writing episode run right now. Did you create it or were you, how, how did you get involved with it? I got involved. This is like a classic example of like, be nice to your coworkers <laughs> and make sure your boss likes you, even if it's tough. Um, but so Sean Hayes, who is Jack from Will and Grace, he's had the idea that he wanted to be a gay James Bond in something for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And like when he was kind of younger and Will and Grace round one was happening, he was like, maybe I could in a movie where I'm gay James Bond, but people like didn't want it then. And then he was like, maybe TV. And it's just sort of like this idea that he's had. Um, and finally, you know, him being who he is, he, he's on a show. Um, he's of a certain age. He's mm-hmm. not jumping out of a helicopter anytime <laughs> soon. And if he did, it would look weird and no one wants him to. Um, it, that's how he was Wait, like, maybe animated. Though? In my I mean, mind, I don't know. Still... He's, Fit as a fiddle. He's gorgeous. He's like, he could jump out of a helicopter if he wanted to, but it's sort of not like the way Hollywood right. thinks of him anymore. Right. Um, you know, like his character on Will and Grace in the second round is like getting married, mm-hmm. you know, and like he's not the, it's just, he's not an action star. Right. You know? So um, he was like, maybe it could be animated. He brought it, he sort of brought it to Mike Schur, who created Parks and Recreations and the good Parks and Recreation. Not S. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was embarrassing. And The Good Place and Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which mm-hmm. is was my one of my first jobs in L.A. Um, he was like, what do you think of that idea? And Mike was like, you sh- I know this writer. You should just tell him that. And they brought me in and I just sort of like took the one sentence of gay James Bond and turned it into a television show. With and tons now of characters you sold and, it. Yeah, sold it. Um, it's funny. I don't like know who's going to get credit for quote-unquote creating it i think that's like a guild arbitration type thing Mm -hmm. but i feel like sean co-created it with me i feel like i've created most of it also so it could go either way which by the way speaking of guild and this is very inside baseball 
Oh, but I, let's go there. Let's go there, girlfriend. <laughs> but it's inside. It's so inside that I'm just in the stands, staring down at it, like with binoculars. Um, there's like a huge thing going on between the Writers Guild and agencies, right? Like Correct. right now, right? Cor- like right As now. As we record the, this, yeah. The deadline of like when the shit will really hit the fan on that is the sixth of April, and today is the fifth. Right. So tomorrow yeah. is like it's bad. Um, and what? And they're just disagreeing. Um. Agencies, this is so boring, but agencies, when they can quote unquote package a show, which means that they, like the creator of the show and maybe a lot of the writers and maybe even a lot of the actors on a certain show will be represented by the same agency. Mm -hmm. Um, And And they can push to get certain, like we want, you get it if, if we get to package it. If we get to package it, that means they'll work harder on Mm -hmm. it. And the reason they'll work harder on it is... All of those people that they represent will waive their commissions, just the 10% that they're paying on it, because um, off to the side in this shadowy area that no one's been talking about for a long time, the agencies actually get a huge payment. They get a fee on the show that's like enormous. So like it's more, more than the creators than... make. Yeah. And it's but way more it... than the 10% that that's they're That's what making. I was going to ask. Way okay, more. Okay. Because I and thought it's... maybe it was just the lump sum of all the people they represent. It's no, it's way, way more. And, and, and it's, it's sort of like the heart of their profits. Mm-hmm. Like when you see that wow. they have these like gleaming huge buildings in century city, it's like, that's kind of that's where the money's why. coming yeah. from. And that's also where they're getting, it's sort of like on that, on that income that they're getting crazy investors from outside mm-hmm. of Hollywood. Just, just be, they're going to turn into studios. Is right. like how they feel, I think. And while I've like, I don't really mind if ever, you know, if an agency wants to sort of feel like they own a show and really push their clients through it. I mean, that works for people to get work. That's awesome. But it's kind of weird. Like when you buy a car, you, the dealership doesn't continue to make money every week off of that sale of a car. Mm -hmm. It's like they did the packaging one time. So they shouldn't make money forever off of yeah. it. And they shouldn't make as much as they are because that money could end up on the screen. It could be higher production budgets. Right. It could be more writers. It well, could be What I was reading, um, I was reading that the writer's salaries have gone down. The Guild says the writer's salaries have gone down yes. in the last couple of years. Have you noticed that? I have. And it's like, it's so silly to complain about because I make more money than I ever dreamed i would the amount when of I got diamond into comedy, jewelry you're wearing i mean is, i'm dripping it's <laughs> no it's just like when i got into stand-up i never thought i would end up with like a, a job with an office mm-hmm. and um benefits and you know I, I have a happy life it's good like writers for television are paid really well what's weird is with this packaging model if you're on so i'm a client of uta I worked on Transparent, which was a UTA package because Jill Soloway is with UTA and I think a lot of other people are too. And um, my pay personally for that was way, way lower than the other people at my level in the writer's room who were repped by other agents because my agent had no incentive to fight against her own company to get me more money because she wasn't even making a commission on it. So it's like she's not going to create waves at UTA by being like Gabe is worth X. Right. 
worth is funny, but I know you know, you Gabe should be paid X. So, and it just sort of came out like I was there for several seasons and it was just like, you eventually start talking about stuff with your coworkers and it was like, oh wait, I'm sorry, what? Like mm-hmm. it was, you know, this very <laughs> cool, smart, brilliant, like happily woman was making so much more money than I was. And I don't begrudge her for that. But I do think like, oh, it's it was very clear like my agent just didn't do her part for me. She was doing her part for the company. Do you still have this agent? I do. <laughs> but we'll see tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, she hasn't signed, you know, her company hasn't signed anything. She's a partner there too. And you know what? It's like, I really like her. Like, she's a smart, cool, as far as agents go, I love her. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's been some shit. Yeah. And, and that's and that's why you're seeing the writer. It, it must look like these really privileged, like, cushy life, life people you know, flipping out when you, the, the, a lot of the writers I see on Twitter and like with the blue profile pictures and people are getting really gung ho about it. Um, it must look so tacky and boring and crappy from the outside, but it really like there is, it is this for us, it's worth tackling right now. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it looks, I don't think it looks like that, but also I so this came up on um, a recent episode of Childish, my other podcast that I was mm-hmm. recording with Greg Fitzsimmons, because he was saying that he hadn't slept the night before, and he's like sort of in between things because he was writing on Crashing, and that just got canceled, right. and now he's like not sure what his next thing is going to be, and this whole s- potential strike thing, right. and so he that just sucks. felt he was just having trouble sleeping, and so that's how we got into it. Um, but he was saying that the mainstream press really isn't covering it, and no. you saying that like all the stuff on Twitter. I'm I'm really not seeing anything oh, on really? Twitter. So it we must follow. Be who I follow. Yeah. yeah, it's like uh, my timeline. I mean, it must. It, it's just I. It's my colleagues and right. my people, and so many stand-up comedians like find a life in in the Writers Guild mm-hmm. um, as a way to stay alive and not be a touring comic. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's like er, there's this little icon that people are using instead of their profile pictures that says I stand with the WGA and mm-hmm. it's like blue with white writing over it. And it's a shocking amount of, of the people I follow. And it's like people I didn't think would be that passionate about it are. But you haven't changed your I have. No, not my profile, but I like what I logged in and I voted with the union. Yeah. You know, it's like and I with a heavy heart, I'll walk away from my agent if I have to. She she's a partner at the company; she can help them sign it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right, now after all this super insidery yeah. showbiz talk, I feel like we got to come out strong with with some. Um, I don't know. Do you have any? Give me some juicy gossip about something or someone. Oh, I mean, this isn't gossip, but I was just to change the subject. I just got a puppy last week. Oh, we need to talk about <laughs> okay, that. I figured yeah. you would. You would like. Please, this. yes. Okay, all the details. Uh, Daniel and I adopted a two-month-old gorgeous little puppy um, from this cute place, Barkin' Bitches in West Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, you, people should follow them on Instagram. They have such cute dogs all the time. Um, and this is this is Daniel's first pet at all. This is my wow. first dog where I'm like in charge because mm-hmm. I like grew up with dogs, but obviously my parents did a lot more work than I did on, my husband on the work part to of make it. fun of me because when we got our first <clears throat> dog, um, I had assured him it was going to be okay because I've had dogs before. Right. And then it became really apparent that like, just because you had a dog in your family where you grew up, means right. you do not know how to take care of a dog. No, I'm like house training her right now. And it's like, oh, I never, I was not even 1% involved in this. Exactly. <laughs> at all. Like I walked her 
Kinda. Like, <laughs> it was like, it, 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 it's shocking, but it's so fun. It's so cute. She, her name is Lydia. Um, and she, they think she is a pit bull and basset hound mm-hmm. mix. Which oh, wow. Is very cute. Big, like, Dumbo ears. Um, but I'm psychotic and I just did like a DNA test on her. <laughs> what, like, do you swab her cheek? You can swab her mm-hmm. cheeks and you can get this on Amazon if you're insane enough. So <laughs> I, I'm like, I don't know why I care so much what breed she is, but it's like, I just want to know. Like, yeah. I haven't even done 23andMe for myself, mm-hmm. but I did it for my dog within the first week. Yeah. No, it just makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I want to know what she's like. How big is she going to be? Like, what? Right. how much food does she need? Stuff like that. I need. I know that I have seen pictures of her, and I've thought she's adorable. But it's like puppy season or something. It's puppy season, yeah. There's so a lot there's of a few other humans. puppies that I might be confusing her with. Are you Here, about I'm to gonna, show me? Okay, please. I am. I have a whole. I have a highlight reel for her on my Instagram. <laughs> we'll just like scroll through. Oh my gosh, she's a little nugget. Oh my god, we went. She's so cute. She's so. She's so cute. She's very sleepy, which I love. Oh, I want to really foster little, the laziness in her. A little puppy belly. Yeah. Oh, okay. Takes four shits in one night. That's one of the captions. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. How's the house training going? It's, you know, it's, okay. It's going okay. She, apparently dogs, like, physically can't it, hold it in that well until they're, right. like, three or four months. Yeah. So I'm trying to be chill about it. She has, like, little accidents here and there. She definitely, like, takes the opportunity to go to the bathroom anytime we're outside. <laughs> and that just means every couple hours we go outside. Yeah. I think I've heard that they can hold it. I gotta show Tony. Yeah, I gotta um, show Tony. I think it's... Is it an hour for every month? Exactly. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. So she's like between two and three months right now. So, so it's two like, to three hours. Yeah. Yeah. And anytime she does anything, I call it spooky. Like anytime she does anything spooky, I'm like, we're going outside. Like, <laughs> right. You would never sniff that. We're going outside. Mm-hmm. It's just like I'm looking for signs in it, in every tea leaf, whether it's <laughs> <laughs> means anything or not. That's good. And how's Daniel, who's never had a, a pet, He's handling it? Loving her. Like he, we definitely both were like so overwhelmed. We also like didn't get her on a feeding schedule mm. correctly for the first several nights. I now know in retrospect, like if you feed a dog, you'll know when it needs to shit mm-hmm. basically. Um, but it was like this crazy high stakes mystery for like three nights. We didn't sleep at all, but now there's like somewhat of a rhythm to it. It's really nice. And he's Daniel's definitely like the one who's going to let her nap on him for mm-hmm. three hours. <laughs> and so he's like living. He loves it. Right. Whereas I'm like, oh, you're so cute. I'll make sure you piss and shit and pet you and play with you. But as soon as you fall asleep, that's when my life begins. And that's when I shower. <laughs> that's when I do my work. And that's when I do my emails. So mm-hmm. he's the cuddly one. We call right. each other the tired one and the fat one. <laughs> <laughs> How did you guys meet? And we, he's an author, right? Yeah, he's an author. Uh, Daniel Zamparelli. He writes fiction and poetry. Um, he has a couple books out and he's working on a new one right now, plus the podcast. And he's, we met on Twitter actually, and he's from Canada. He's from Vancouver. Um, and we met and we were just sort of like long distance, fun, flirty pen pals Mm -hmm. for a long time. And then on email on Twitter DM and then text and email probably, but mostly text. Mm -hmm. And then it was, like, kind of obsessive texting. And then I was like, I'm just going to come visit you. Like, uh, Vancouver and L.A., it's, like, it's different countries, but it's not actually that far. And we just started dating long distance for a couple years and then got married. And he lives here now. And when was that? We got married uh, about a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. 
I gotta ask when because I got married a year and a half ago. Really? Uh, June in June. Oh, okay, I'm August. Never mind. Oh, <laughs> we didn't get married on the same day. Damn it! But what? It would have been really cool though. <laughs> but you still could be married to someone named Daniel if you just that's true. Put the wheels in motion. Mm-hmm. So oh, I Gabe. guess we're coming up on two years. It's April, June. Yeah. Did you always want to get married? You know, I didn't think I like could mm-hmm. for a long time. So like. I think, like, you know, coming up gay, like, before it was legal, I just sort of was like, well, I guess that's not part of my life. And then when it became legal, I was, I didn't have a boyfriend or anything. So it it never was a big part of my life. Mm -hmm. Being in different countries made it, like, an imperative because there's only so many days of the year that you can spend in another country. Mm -hmm. And every country has that rule. So it sort of confronted us with like, well, if we're serious about being together, we have to get married. And that be, it was fun and exciting. And now I'm like, so glad, Mm -hmm. but it's funny. Like, I think if we both just lived in LA, we probably would have just dated for a really long time and like moved in, but we didn't have that option. Mm -hmm. Were you, um, monogamous before? And are you, I uh, are you monogamous uh, now. Oh, um, we're like we're we have an open relationship, but it hasn't like we don't like do anything about it really. <laughs> but it's sort of like um, <clears throat> with other past boyfriend. I've only had a couple other boyfriends, and I and we were monogamous. Mm-hmm. Um, there was something about getting married and sort of feeling like. I think we both felt like we were getting married a little early mm-hmm. for both of our tastes, but we still wanted to be, just stay together. It just sort of seemed like kind of a load off to be like, and you know, it won't be a, a you know, it won't be a nuclear option if mm-hmm. you feel like, you know, stuck in this or whatever. Right. And just knowing that feels relaxing. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So you write, you have written, Yes. For all these shows. Yeah. Amazing shows. I reached out to you. Like I said, I've been following you. I think you're hilarious. Um, I fell in love with Pen15. And I knew you were, yeah, such a good show. For anyone who hasn't seen it, go watch it. It's streaming. It's on Hulu. Yeah. Um, It's, how would you describe it? It is a comedy about two 13-year-old girls in the year 2000 entering seventh grade. Um, they're best friends. They vow to do everything together. And obviously the world has different plans for them. That's not <laughs> realistic. Um, and then the twist on it is that the 13, the main 13 year old girls are actually played by women who are in their thirties. Right. Um, but all the other 13 year olds really the rest are, of the cast are age appropriate. Yes. Kids, including their crushes and boyfriends and enemies mm-hmm. and, um, siblings. It's just like a very surreal, crazy world it really is yeah but and it's so sweet and hilarious it's and it's such a it it to me feels so honest yeah anna anna conkle and maya erskine are the stars um and they play anna and maya who are sort of versions of their younger selves Mm -hmm. they are um they're not like sketch comedians they're not stand-up comedians they are like and they're theater school, NYU experimental theater actors. Mm-hmm. So they just sort of like approached this 
in a completely not for jokes way where interesting because you've written yeah. for a lot of shows helmed by comedians exactly yeah created by comedians starring comedians and then any you know brooklyn 99 goes through every episode goes through like five punch-ups mm-hmm. you know so it's like it's always going for the joke always 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 has been sort of the aesthetic and then these girls plus their the um their co-creator sam who directed a lot of the episodes they just sort of were like, we want to do something that's not punched up. We want to do something that sounds like real dialogue and has real feelings. And like the girls, they can cry. And um, they wanted to tell these stories for people to see about like, what does it feel like when someone's racist to you? What does it feel like when you have a crush and you, he's a bad kisser (laughs) and you've never kissed someone and Mm -hmm. you don't know if kissing is like that always. And, you know, just these really like poignant things. And I, I love, you know, once we got on set, I was like blown away by just like their acting approach. It's Mm -hmm. just so dead on. And were you involved from the beginning? When did you come Um, on? The three of them created the show and tried to sell it about four or five years ago. And it's gone through various, like, development dead ends Mm -hmm. that I think they were at Fox for a little bit. And um, just, like, here and there and production companies and everyone crapping out. And I think everyone just sort of, like, didn't... It's It's really hard to describe. It doesn't, like sound as pleasing as it is Mm -hmm. it sounds like a challenge i think to a lot of people but it's actually pretty chill um to watch i mean it's emotional but it's it's weird you know it's not like it's not like it's should be in moma or anything you know what i mean it's not like hard (laughs) right um but it's really it's the kind of show that you want to just binge yeah versus what was the oh true detective did you watch this season yeah which is tough yeah i I wanted to know what was going to happen until the end where I'm like, why did I waste all those hours? But um, I never would have wanted to watch two episodes in no, a row. It's just you, too much. couldn't. Yeah. yeah. So they, along these four or five years of development hell, were able to, someone along the way made a pilot presentation of Pen15, which was basically like a 10 minute version of the whole season like first day of school all the way to the dance and you could see they cast real kids and they did their whole thing and hulu um picked it up based on that Mm -hmm. that's when i got involved maya and i have the same manager who's been telling me about this for years and years (laughs) and just like my client maya has the most insane project you will be so obsessed with it when you finally see it and she was right. And I just like came in guns a blaze. It was like anything, anything for this job. And it was my first show running experience. Oh, I didn't know you were the showrunner. Oh, that's yeah. so cool. And it was a dream. So what specifically are the duties of a showrunner? The showrunner runs the writer's room and is sort of responsible for anything to do with the script. So when you're writing, it's like the showrunner is like the one, oh my God. Sorry, your That's dog great. is That's so cute. That's Wendy. I did not know she was <laughs> Wendy. She was on a walk earlier. I didn't realize she was. Home. Oh my god! I, I truly thought that was the wind or a person, and there's like just a little snout at the window. Uh, she's perfect. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Showrunners, you 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 write you run the writers' room, and then like when you go to set, you're there for every scene to just make sure the tone is right and. If there's a joke that everyone thought was going to be funny and then when you see it and it's not, mm-hmm. like, you have to f- fix it on the fly. And 
Um, so you're the boss man. You're the boss man. How was yeah. that? It was awesome. And Anna and Maya and Sam had such a vision that it was kind of like the dream first show running mm-hmm. gig where I was like, basically my job here is to make sure that their vision comes through. And so it wasn't like, shit, what is episode two going to be? <laughs> you know, you know, it wasn't freaking out in that way. It was sort of like running defense for people who are stepping into TV for the first time to be like, okay, how do you want to do it? Okay, cool. And then I sort of run ahead mm-hmm. and make sure that that's how it's done and sort of fend off notes and explain to execs why it should be blah. Was that a challenge? It was. It was really, really hard. Yeah. There just wasn't, there wasn't a lot of belief in the show. And like, I think now that it's aired and it got such good reviews, I mean, it's like, of all the things I've written on, I've never seen reviews like that before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people gush over it. I think they really gush and like, critics really loved it. I think like, hopefully season two will be chiller now that it's sort of like, we've established Mm -hmm. a tone. Um. I mean, what were the kind of things that you had to protect against? You had mentioned earlier that in previous shows, there's more punching up, more jokes. Yeah. Was there pressure to put more jokes some, on the script? Yeah. I mean, some stories just seem too sad. Some, um, you know, and it was, uh, yeah, there was definitely story stuff where it was like, you know, um, th- there's some stuff that goes on with the Anna character's family. Mm-hmm. I don't want to, like, spoil it. It's pretty sad. Oh, yeah. But it's like... You know, sort of like the walk up to the big moment where the thing happens just didn't read. We were constantly getting a note that it wasn't realistic, that it didn't really happen this way. Mm. And it's so funny to tell someone that because it's like, well, this is what happened with my parents. And this is how I remember it. Mm -hmm. So it actually does happen this way for some people. Right. And it's just sort of like giving voice to the artists. What was... Where they would try... Sorry. They would try... I I was fine. I, I... I had to at least act and did find it to be true that my peop, the execs would trust me mm-hmm. because I've, I'm going to, I've done shows. So, um, in, it, it, I felt like the artists sort of got the, like, mm, well, that's not really how it's done mm-hmm. vibe. Whereas like, if I fought hard enough, I could make sure her voice would like, it looked the way it felt. Right. Yeah. Um, See, what I, what I admire about that story is that you – it sounds as if you were never swayed by all the notes you were getting. Because I this is like a theme that comes up on the show a lot. I, I talk about like something I work on in life is just not – like I need to be less permeable. Mm-hmm. I need to be less swayed by stuff and more true to whatever vision or whatever. Just like a thicker – a firmer core. Yeah. Because I'm very – like malleable it was easy because i was using their core like i was (laughs) like you know like the i suffer from a ton of self-doubt like about my own ideas and like when if if you know this like the thing i'm writing right now q force like i'm building from the ground up and so like the note i really take a lot of the notes because i don't think that everything i'm spewing out is perfect Mm -hmm. But there was something about it being Anna, Maya, and Sam's artistic vision where it was – I was able to not have self-doubt mm-hmm. about it and just be like, well, I've seen the proof 
of their concept and it's the best thing I've ever seen. So if I can just keep the shell around the egg here yeah. and just keep it gushy and safe, like we're good. Right. And that like took, it, it gave me a different sort of attitude about notes than I do about work that comes directly from mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. What was your uh, middle school experience like? Ooh, it was ugly. Um, I went to a K through 12 Quaker school in Philly, which is like, Usually a very Quaker schools are like very known to be kind of hippie-ish, mm-hmm. I think, in most um, circumstances. But like this one happened to be like a very conservative one where we had a dress code and like um, it was it was just very socially conservative. There was no gay teachers. There was no gay kids. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a ton of racial diversity. There was no, no financial diversity. It was like mostly who could pay, mm-hmm. you know, was going. And that meant a lot of white Jewish kids um, from Philly. Um, it was like not, it w- I didn't love it. And being in the same place K through 12, like if you're not loving it, if you're not loving it, like it doesn't get better. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, it's like maybe it could have been cool for me to change schools, but it was like, I didn't have a lot of friends. I was sort of like when when I was like a little boy, I was friends with all the like funny Jewish boys. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but then as I sort of started to hit puberty and got gay and fat, they sort of like distanced themselves from me. And I sort of transitioned into a friends with like, kind of like the burnouty girls, gothy girls sto- who became stoner girls. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was just like three of us and it was like, um, not the best. I wasn't very happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't have, I didn't, I had a ton of support from my family. They were always very <laughs> kind and supportive, but I never felt like the school thought I was like smart, mm-hmm. which I was <laughs> <laughs> clearly would I have heard of this school. I don't know. It's called I mean, I Penn know, Charter. No, I know Sidwell friends, but I don't know where that That's is. in DC. That's like the same. Yeah. But president's kids go there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> this is like the owner of the Phillies kids went there. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's interesting that a lot of Jewish kids went to a Quaker school. Yeah. My dad went to a Quaker college and I grew up with no religion, but I had a best friend who was Mormon and I was like, why don't, and anytime I spent the night at her house, you know, we would, mm-hmm. there was religious things that happened on Sunday and I was like, why don't we have any, any of that? Yeah. So we began going to Quaker meetings for a little while. Um, I love that. And like, I like loved the Quaker part of it. And right. Quaker meeting is great. Um, it just was like the particular makeup of this one school just was, it was very buttoned up, very rich. I didn't realize that. And maybe this is just the case in all organizations, but, uh, there, uh, historically there's some hypocrisy within the, within Quakers. I mean yeah. like that it was like a pretty, uh, I don't know how would I describe it? Like. Well, like what you're talking about, like there can be like a, a conservative old money Quakerism that is not right. super open-minded and totally. tolerant. Yeah. And like, I don't think like the football team should get so much money. Right. I don't think the Quaker, <laughs> like, I don't think that seems Quakerly. It I don't seems, know. I'm not a Quaker, but it seems not Quaker. Just stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you grew up in Philadelphia. Yeah. I grew up downtown. This school was in the burbs. So mm-hmm. we did like a reverse commute and <laughs> I, yeah, I grew up in like downtown Philly. Do you have siblings? Cool. Yes, I'm the middle. I have an older brother and a younger sister. Mm -hmm. What are your parents like? My parents are awesome. My dad actually just passed away 
um, a year ago. Mm. He was very funny, very outgoing. Um, just like kind of like the neighborhood character, like every kid, every dog, every person knew who he was kind of unofficial mayor of our neighborhood. (laughs) Really funny, really cool, really smart. Um, he was a civil engineer, which is kind of what my brother is too, but my brother is, um, transitioned into like building and then selling real estate, Mm -hmm. um, in New York, which is awesome. So he's, killing life um and he still lives in brooklyn he's got two kids does he dress really well because i just feel like if you're gonna have that kind of lifestyle and do that job you've got to be like he's like new york real estate he's on this construction sites oh he's like kind of i mean he's the like the business guy at the construction but he doesn't wear a suit okay because i'm picturing like like million dollar listing but this is he's more hands-on exactly (laughs) yeah so he's there to like make sure the foundation is like getting poured on the right day in the east village or whatever so he wears like jeans and like Mm -hmm. uh you know he, he dresses like that um and but I'm sure he has suits. I'm like now I'm like, oh, but then what does he do when he sells them? Maybe no, I feel like this. Qu- I feel like this question came out of left field, and I'm almost regretting asking it. I'm sure that he, sartorially he is beyond reproach. I just New York real not estate. Fancy. Yeah, New York real estate dre- to me is such a like. Yeah, he dresses very not world. fancy. I think because he has to show up and like the guys have to see right, him right, and listen to him. So your dad was a civil engineer. Yeah, he was a civil engineer. Uh, my mom was a writer and journalist. She's still living, but she's retired. She wrote for the Philly newspaper, which used to be called the Bulletin. She was like a reporter. Um, and then when she had kids, she went like kind of freelance and worked mostly in like magazines and wrote like weirdly wrote for a ton of business journals. Like, I don't know how she fell into that niche. Mm-hmm. She's not like, she didn't read the wall street journal or anything. I think she's just a good interviewer and like, good at writing about entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And so she sort of like fell into that as a niche. And now she's like retired. She and my sister live together and still in downtown Philly and have a little, uh, Chihuahua. Oh, (laughs) it's very cute. (laughs) Did you always want to go into comedy? Yeah. I always wanted to go into show business. I always wanted to go into comedy. I sort of didn't, really like have the guts to do stand up until I was in my twenties when mm-hmm. I was like just nuts kind of <laughs> you have to be kind of crazy. Um to want to do stand up. Um but yeah like I always wanted to like work in TV. TV is my favorite. What was your so you didn't do, get into comedy until you were crazy in your twenties and of course we are we'll be digging into that. Yeah. But uh what did you think you wanted to do before that then? I probably would like wanted to be a movie star, you know? I like I was, I liked acting. I liked Mm -hmm. being in plays. Um, I, I really liked creative writing. That was always like what I liked in school. Um, and writing like stories and stuff like that. I don't think I knew that there was like TV writers, Mm -hmm. but it all sort of adds up. Right. Okay. You're in your twenties and you're crazy. Go on. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in my twenties. I'm crazy. I live in Brooklyn. I'm drunk and high all the time. Mm -hmm. Where did you go to college? Um, I went to Columbia Mm -hmm. and they, I got really into improv and that was sort of like the, the catalyst that got Mm -hmm. me like into stand up was doing improv. I got obsessed with it. Were you at UCB? No, we had a group on campus and then, and did it there for four years. And then when we graduated, 
I was not done with it. Mm-hmm. And I did UCB 101, um, but I felt like I couldn't afford it. <laughs> it's expensive. <laughs> it's expensive. And I felt like, I don't, like, I've been doing this for so many years. Like, you know, cocky 20s, something. Mm-hmm. There's always something something I could have learned. But I just, there's something I, I, it just chafed. I didn't, like, want to be at a school. Right. Um, and that's sort of where I found Rafifi. Was like, it was a stand-up dive bar but there weren't any real rules and like people were not, there were some people doing real like normal standup, John Mulaney and Aziz and Chelsea Peretti were mm-hmm. all there and stuff like that. But there was also just like wackos who were making stuff up. And one of my college improv friends, Jenny Slate, um, who's now like a comedian and actress and everything. She and I, we were just like the two who weren't done doing improv like we were like we're gonna do this for a living watch Mm -hmm. us and that's how we became sort of a stand-up duo and then it's at some point max yes and max max went to college in uh providence and then like moved to new york at 23 and so me and jenny and max and joe mandy and noah garfinkel we were like the five 23 year olds at the dive bar <laughs> where everyone else was sort of like in their late twenties or thirties doing stand up, And, um, we just sort of like came up in that scene. Mm-hmm. We were like the kids. Um, and we, and Joe and Joe Mandy and Noah Garfinkel became like a little duo. And then me and Jenny and Max got together and became our little unit. Mm-hmm. When you say you were a stand up duo with Jenny, um, my, I'm just, I'm, my question is, uh, I have some question which I cannot articulate, <laughs> but it involves. I'll just I'll just make it images. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> going from improv to stand up. Like, was that what was the duo like? What the were you guys duo, doing? like we had bits that were sort of that were rehearsed. Not they were rehearsed on stage. Mm-hmm. It was sort of like we would improvise something and be like, "Oh, that's really funny," and then just sort of like do that as if it was stand up until it evolved into like a couple of minutes on mm-hmm. a certain thing, like one the f- the first joke that we had that we just kept forever was she it was the idea was like she was in love with me and couldn't tell that I was gay, but also wasn't listening to me when I was saying I'm gay. Mm-hmm. So it was like these two sort of in and out dueling monologues almost where it was like, I was talking to her and she was talking to the audience about how I was like the love of her life. And I was like, she's not listening, you know, <laughs> just like this sort of like interjecting under right. monologue. And that was like, probably like, our first three minutes. <laughs> Have whatever. you ever had an experience like that in real life? Where a woman couldn't tell I was gay? Never. It's so <laughs> funny. Like, I never... And I was never one of the closeted gay guys who, like, hooked up with girls or had a girlfriend. I think everyone was just like, no, you're gay. <laughs> <laughs> You'll figure it out. Like, I didn't even... I, there's only a few girls in my life, in that closeted life, where I was like, I have a crush on you. And they were like... I'm so flattered, <laughs> but it didn't like lead to kissing or anything. But did you, believe, did you, did you have genuine crushes on them? I think in a way, but I, they, they were, they were also sort of like my ticket. I thought like, if I can like mm. not be gay, that would be great is how I was feeling. Mm-hmm. And then it would be like, well, this girl friend of mine is pretty. She's cool. We hang out all the time. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe I could fake it. Like but- what age was that about? That was early 20s. Oh, late, wow. Late teens, early 20s. Yeah, I came... Or no, I mean, it must have been late teens. I came out at 20. Oh. First, when you talked about your experience at 
this stuffy Quaker school. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you said that when you, like around puberty. Right. So I, for some reason, I thought that you were no, I think out it was so like much when younger. I was like projecting gay. Okay. When I just seemed gay to other people or when they had the word for it, probably. It was like, I mean, I honestly remember people calling me gay in first grade. God. So it's like, like other kids? Other kids, yeah. And like, so just knowing, it was like being told you were something before you, before I found it myself, but I also mm-hmm. like, pretty quickly knew they were right i just also knew it was like not a compliment <laughs> so i should like, keep it's it to myself a lot for a kid to it sucks. process yeah 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 it's still like that for a lot of kids yeah um but not but things are changing a little bit for some kids for mm-hmm. sure but yeah it sucks did you have depression yeah i definitely had depression um like i never felt suicidal but i felt really sad i felt really alone i felt i was very low energy mm-hmm. um which you know if this if i was one of, if i was a friend of mine i'd be like oh you're depressed right you know it was like looking back like that's exactly what was going on um but i also you know i think this is kind of like a thorny thing for people who are depressed but it's like you also give off shitty vibes and like people don't then treat you well either you know which sucks it's like a bad cycle where i was sad and offended that i had no friends mm-hmm. and then i acted like a dick and no one wanted to be my friend right you know? right yeah that, i mean if it sucks if not it, that people who are depressed are always like that right but that was how it played out for me mm-hmm. no but i get i mean I, I get what you're saying that in general if you have a chip on your shoulder which if you're alone you it you often do yeah um or if you're feeling lonely, oftentimes yeah. that it like gives off a vibe that yeah is a uh, is the opposite of what you're looking for. Exactly, and it's such a it's like a self fulfilling prophecy. Shit, yeah, prophecy, yeah. People, uh, yeah. Everyone has their crosses. Like I see that so much with in Hollywood. There's so much of that where it's like I'm bummed out that I can't get a job, and it's like you're probably a bummer in meetings. <laughs> right. It sucks. Yeah. Ah. Uh, that is one of the great iniquities. The whole thing yeah. of like abundance breeds abundance. It's like, well, that feels real unfair. It sure does. <laughs> it's really fucked up. <laughs> so um, yeah. you came out in your early 20s, you said? Yeah. What was that like? Um, it was smooth. Like I knew I knew my family like was fine with it. Um, not we I kind of grew up in the gay neighborhood mm-hmm. a little bit in Philly and like the restaurant a block from our house that we had dinner at every week was also a lesbian martini bar where all of the waiters were like cute gay guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and knowing that my parents liked to go there every week made me know that they liked gay people and that they were fine. And was that just, it. was any part of their decision to go there to make you feel comfortable or anything like that? Or yeah, was it I just wonder. I mean, it's, it literally was two blocks from our house. It was an amazing restaurant. Like, the food was great, so... But I wonder if they were sending me a little message. Mm-hmm. I like to think they were, you know? Um, but it... And it really, like... If they were sending me a message, it really worked. I was mm-hmm. like, well, we go to Judy's. Like, they don't hate gay people. They're not going to kick me out of the house. Or they're not going to... You know, they're not going to... I'm not out of the family if I'm right. gay. And um, it mostly was like kind of coming out of the 90s like gay just signified so much like turmoil and sadness in a person's life i feel like um 
that I just was sort of like, ugh, I guess I'm admitting that my heart, my life is going to be hard. And that's mm. what I felt like I wish I could change or something like that. Um, Just like any, you know, rent in Philadelphia and like any like shit about being gay was like, oh, you get AIDS. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the story of being gay. It's not like fun or whatever. Or it's not like, it's not like everyone else's life. Mm-hmm. So I think that was sort of like what made the coming out scary for me was like admitting I'm gay. Okay. Now I'm going to be gay for the rest of my life, which means my life is like going to be hard. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. But then it hasn't played out like that at all. Right. Yeah. When you say that gay represented turmoil and sadness, is is that what you're talking about? Like that the representations AIDS, yeah. of gayness were of struggle? Yes. It was like AIDS. It was like Matthew Shepard. It was like, um, yeah, it was just like hate crimes or disease mm-hmm. or or being kicked out of your family. It was right. like so many – I loved my so-called life so much. It was like such a seminal – TV experience for me, but like Ricky is bi mm-hmm. and homeless because of it. And mm-hmm. it was just like, oh, great. And while that is true for so many people, it also does, you know, obviously you want to represent people who do come out and are kicked out of their family, but it's also like it made it's it made it scary for me to come out because it was just like, oh, this sucks. Here we go. <laughs> and it's also embarrassing because it's like mom and dad. This is the kind of sex I'm interested in having. Like, right, it's fair. It's like a, a lot of detail. Virgin. Let me mm-hmm. just tell you, it's just like embarrassing. Right. Do you think it's different now for gay kids? Not that you're the president of all things gay, <laughs> but do you think that there? Do you think it represents struggle and sadness in your words less now? I hope so. I think that definitely in terms of like representation in media. Um, I think we've come a long way. That there are like happy, lovely gay things out there um and not just gay but trans and bi and everything um i also think that the internet is huge for kids i mean like i can just imagine being like one of the only gay kids in your town well you can also go online Mm -hmm. and talk to kids who don't live in your town and like fuck your town you know so like that that's like kind of a cool outlet um that i think hopefully save some kids some stress um so much of like everyone's teen experience and i felt this working on pin 15 too and like working with actual teens is like so everyone's life sucks at that age it is so brutal and it's sort of just like about keeping yourself sane until you're like 20 one of the things that my husband and i uh talk about with pen 15 that's so amazing with that show is that the 13-year-olds that are the objects of Anna and Maya's uh, cru- the, the, the love interests, like, they are truly, they truly look 13 and yeah. kind of prepubescent. Yes. So it's, it's so hilarious. They truly are 13 and yeah. prepubescent. <laughs> One of our greatest sort of battles in terms of taste in making the show was in the casting of the kids mm-hmm. because kids who are interested in acting – in this town are pretty cute and Disney Mm -hmm. and pretty rehearsed and like not the kids you went to school with actually. And they're actually like, don't look like the kids that you had a crush on either. Like if you were to open your own yearbook. Mm -hmm. So getting like kind of like mushy, weird kids who aren't great at their lines, but like 
have the vibe was such a we had to really sell like uh, Maya's sort of crush best friend Sam who's like such a dreamboat and this is he so was creepy. So good. He's so great and I mean I every day someone is like I know I'm not allowed to say this but I'm in love with Sam <laughs> on Ben 15 and it's like he reminds you of the boy that you were in love with. Mm-hmm. Um he got rejected by the network like f- four times. Wow. And we, Just for being not Hollywood enough. Exactly. Yeah, and it was like, "Well, what about like this kid who like you know, has worked on five TV shows, mm-hmm. is probably going to be on time, like, whatever. Like, I don't know what they were betting on, but also just, like, didn't look the part. Like, didn't look like the kid next door at mm-hmm. all. Um, and we found the one. He's, like, incredible. And I, I hope he has a huge career. I feel like he will. Yeah, I mean, he's so soulful for a kid. Mm-hmm. And it's just because he's, like, real, and he was so happy to be there. Yeah, soulful is exactly the word that yeah. I remember using when I was watching it. So how did you... uh improv to comedy and then how did you get into writing for shows um it was sort of like when my peers started getting their own shows um the first show the first cool show i wrote okay i mean like <laughs> we can go technical when did i start writing or like when did i when did my career really start oh let's do both um, okay so the technical answer and this is so silly was my day job while i was doing stand-up was i worked at barney's on Madison Avenue as a sales boy um, with no fashion background. It was very fun and crazy. Why didn't you call your brother? I know. We've... He's the expert. Exactly. <laughs> I should have. Um, and I got to quit that job finally because I got a job writing on TRL. Oh. Which is psychotic. The MTV show with Carson Daly. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And it was their very last season. And I was so happy and I was so proud. And that was really my first job. How did, how does one get hired on TRL? Someone from MTV saw me do stand up mm-hmm. downtown and was just like, you're funny. Um, we're hiring. Like, and I just like did an app, uh, uh, some like sort of application. Packet? Yeah. It must've been a packet mm-hmm. or something. Um, and interviewed for it, but it was like, yeah, someone had seen me do stand up, and that's like, really cool. that's why you do stand up every night for free. Yeah, <laughs> it's like someone will see you someday. Um, but my first sort of like thing that I like list as a credit that I'm proud of is uh, Billy on the Street, which was Billy Eichner's oh, show, nice. the best show. Yes, so genius, and it was just sort of like Billy sold a show and knew me and liked me and brought from me on comedy world? just from comedy mm-hmm. new york comedy world and the next person was amy schumer and the next person was nick kroll um and that sort of hop it was like you know you watch your peers around you pop mm-hmm. and if they like you <laughs> or if they like your voice or if they want you know if they like something about what you're doing they'll bring you know i came along or not came along i, I wrote for them um so were you on the first season of Inside Amy Schumer? Yes. What was it like working on that show at the time? Because to me, that was her breakout yeah. moment. Would you agree? It was. And it was, you know, so I wrote the season before it broke out. Or I mean, it like the season we wrote sort of led to the breakout. Mm-hmm. But when we were writing it, she was um, only known for stand-up and was from Last Comic Standing. Like, wasn't mm-hmm. – she was like a comic – in New York, but not from the same mm-hmm. scene as me and Mulaney and right. all these other people. She was, she had come in through last comic standing and she was so funny and she just sort of like showed up and it was like, 
holy shit. Like, who is this? And I just, I loved her style. Um, and I thought she had like a really funny voice and everything. I was, I was very into her. Um, and when she, like, she texted me out of the blue, I sold a show. It's sketch. Will you write for it? Um, I was like, oh my God. Yes. That's actually what got me into the writer's guild. Oh wow. Was Amy Schumer. Um, and I was thrilled and then we like sat down and it was just sort of like, well, what's the sketch comedy version of Amy Schumer? Like we had to just sort of like, she's, this isn't what anyone knows that she can do. Mm-hmm. It was like, we had to sort of like mine her and realize like, oh, she's like a theater dork. And like, she has all these geeky characteristics. And also it the show was, um, the head writer was Jesse Klein. Mm-hmm. He's a brilliant, brilliant writer, brilliant comedian. And I think it was because of, I think Jesse sort of found like the feminist bent mm-hmm. to it to be like, well, you're going to be the woman with a sketch comedy show. And like, we're going to make some really hard feminist jokes and that's going to be the sketch version of your standup. And it was fun. The, it was, it was the great unknown in a lot of ways though, because like there talk about like self doubt. It was just like, she, I don't think Amy knew that she was going to be a huge star. I don't mm-hmm. think she knew that people were going to like accept her as an actress. And I think like she had some of her trepidations. Um, it was also sadly when Tig Nataro mm-hmm. was going through her awful battle with can- cancer. And it was like Tig wrote on the show and like she was there in the writer's room, but it was like, you know days after her double mastectomy and you know she was so frail and we were also worried for her were you did you know her prior to the show yeah mm-hmm. um and seeing her in that state because she is such like a tough guy mm-hmm. like she's like tough so it was just so like seeing tig like wrapped in a blanket with a very restricted diet and just like in tons of physical pain was mm-hmm. like yikes it was just really really hard but i'm really proud of it and i think it kicked off like an amazing show Mm -hmm. and how long did you stay on the show i just did the first season and then i moved to la um because i got a job on Kroll show and i really wanted to live in la i was really done with new york Mm -hmm. and i just uh Kroll show was maybe i think my contract was like 10 weeks or something like that and i was just like cool i'm bringing all my shit (laughs) (laughs) i live here now and i don't know what i'm gonna do next but Mm -hmm. i just like jumped i really wanted to be here how come um that was about 13 or so years into new york Mm -hmm. and i felt like i'd done it a lot and i had just broken up with a boyfriend and i was coming to la for meetings and shows and every time i did i was just like it's so nice here why do I live in Brooklyn? Mm -hmm. Like where in Brooklyn were you? I was in Fort Greene, which is so nice. Mm -hmm. Um, but I was like moving into smaller and smaller and smaller apartments as like, it got to be a nicer neighborhood. And it sounds like I work a lot, but in New York I was, I was unemployed at least six months out of the year and Mm -hmm. just sort of like scraping by. And it just felt like I needed to shake up my life. And uh, I just realized we only glossed over the drunk and high every night in your 20s. Yes. Go back to that, please. I'm still kind of a stoner. I'll admit that. But it's legal. So it's sort of my wine or whatever. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I was like kind of like 
just like kind of a grungy party kid, like hanging out at dive bars because of comedy shows, drinking like seven drinks a night, seven nights a week or whatever, high stoned all day, Mm -hmm. even at work at Barney's. I mean, who cares? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And yeah, just sort of like, I didn't cook. I didn't clean my room. I was, you know, I was a mess, but happy, really happy. Um, I read your Grub Street article, Ooh. so in in New York Magazine, where you talk about your what you eat for like a, a whole week. Um, and there was one night where you made yourself a turkey meatloaf, oh, and yes. I was I was quite impressed actually because that there were multiple steps. There was yeah. I think there was braising. <laughs> there was you know that was like that's a. Meatloaf, but still, yeah. it's fairly the way you did it was fairly fancy. Just for like, I'm just gonna whip up something for myself. Yeah, are you? I like to cook a lot. Okay, that's yeah, the question. I like yeah. love to cook. Both of my parents are really good cooks, and there was someone was cooking all the time in my house, and I just like I find it really soothing, and like I love to eat, so um, they go hand in hand a little bit there. Where do you stand on a microwave? Um, it's useful. Um, I, I use my microwave, like mostly to reheat things, Mm -hmm. not to like cook from scratch, but I, I lived in so many shitty apartments that didn't come with a microwave, you know, um, and never like bought myself one, but now I live in a house and it came with a microwave and I use it all the time. Uh, I looked at many shitty apartments that didn't have a dishwasher and that (sighs) felt like a real deal breaker for me. That's really important. I mean, I didn't have my first dishwasher until I moved to LA. Mm. You know, that was like so not an option for yeah. me. My husband anymore. is a real like I think he's changed now. I've I've changed him. Uh-huh. But for a long time he would have been a I don't need a microwave, I don't need a dishwasher person. Yeah. I mean, it's like I'm sure he's technically right. But it's nice to have them. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, technically we don't need 90% of the shit we have. Yeah. Tony, where do you stand on microwaves and dishwashers? I'm fine with a microwave. Oh, uh, fine. That means you don't love it. Though. No, no, no. Oh, no. I didn't mean it that way. <laughs> uh, give me a mic. Give me all the microwaves. <laughs> I want them. Uh, I do not currently have a dishwasher, and I hate not having mm-hmm. one because I'm I am used to having one, and then uh, our current place does not have one, and I'm not a fan of that. You, I. It's so nice. Yeah. I bought. So I didn't even know they have portable dishwashers. Mm. Oh yeah, they, I just found out about those recently. Yes. Yeah. They're very big. And it just feels like this shouldn't work when you hook it up to your sink. Uh, and so I didn't even know this existed. But then once I found out about it, I was like, I have to get one of these in my uh, a few a few abodes ago where I didn't have a dishwasher. So I bought one off of some guy off, off Craigslist. And it worked like three times. And I was like, this, my life has turned around. <laughs> and then it stopped working. And I thought, I feel like this guy sold me something that he knew wasn't working that well. Yeah. And then it was just too big to get rid of. So right. I don't. Actually, I don't know when I moved what happened to it. Because mm-hmm. yeah, I, I don't say, recall get an... ever getting rid of it. <laughs> it just sat in the laundry room for the rest of the time I lived there. Yeah. Let's take some questions from fans. <laughs> um, sure. I'm on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Allison Rosen is where you go. There's all sorts of like bonus material, bonus episodes, behind the scenes stuff. And one of the perks is you can have your, you can submit questions for guests and they just jump to the front of the line and we Ooh. have a little jingle. All right. Whitney C. would like to know, what's the chore you most enjoy and what's the one you most loathe? 
Ooh, that's so good. Um, I really like emptying the dishwasher. Really? Yeah. I like this. It's like some ASMR tinkly little sound mm-hmm. thing happens for me. Um, I really, yeah, that's probably up there. I also really like, this is very weird, but I really like weeding my garden. I don't think that's that weird. No. What do you use to weed? That shows how much I don't garden. Well, I mean, I just use my fingers. It's okay. almost like plucking. I I think about it all the time, but it's like plucking eyebrows. <laughs> and I just go like one. Right. Um, And I'm like, it's, it's on a hill, so I don't have to like, I'm not down on the ground when I'm doing Oh, that's that, nice. The nice. weeds come to you. The weeds come to me. And what They're do you. sort mo- of waste level. What do you. Mo- oh, that's. It's really. That's nice. ideal. Yeah. 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 What do you most loathe? Uh. I, right now, I have all this clean laundry that needs to be folded. And my husband's out of town and it's not getting folded. <laughs> oh, is he the, is he a folder? He's much better about the laundry than I am. I'm like, well, it's clean. You know, like, I'll eventually get yeah. to it. The puppy is my excuse right now. <laughs> um, but I really, I'm I'm a real procrastinator shithead about folding my own clean laundry. So where is the puppy now? The puppy's in her crate. She's very... She loves her crate. Like, I leave the door open to it all day, and she'll, like, sometimes nap in there and mm-hmm. stuff. So she's, like... She's good in her crate right now. I'm mostly talking myself off a ledge. <laughs> but <laughs> every time I leave her in, the, in her crate, I, like, floor it home and sprint up the front stairs, and I, fl- you know, like kick open the front door thinking she's going to be, like, sitting in her own pee and crying and screaming. And she's, like... Barely awake, barely looks at me, you know, like totally chill every time. So I had that for yeah. the longest time. I remember when we had Oliver, our dog, before Wendy. That's the one that the one who you saw earlier. Um, the first time I left to get lunch with a friend, but it was like a a meet a lunch meeting, um, and I left him in a pen, so not in his crate, but in yeah. a pen with some mm-hmm. toys. And I was convinced that I was going to come home and he would have like choked on one of the toys. And I started thinking like, oh, I think that that particular bone I left in there, it was like a Nyla bone, was, is for older dogs older than oh, he God, is. And yeah, yeah. I almost left the meeting just to go home to make sure everything was okay. Yeah. I relate to that so much. <laughs> I, she had, my dog has a playpen too, but she's just started having accidents in it. And it's like, she, well, I always think she's going to grab another toy. Mm-hmm. And then I like look and she's like peed. So I'm like, I think she needs... I think her playpen's done. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) All right. Next question. Seth Eisenberg would like to know, Mm -hmm. you've written with so many comedians with very specific voices slash points of view. Kroll, Schumer, Alana, and Abby. Oh, that's right. You wrote on Broad City. Yes. Uh, How much are you attempting to write in their voice versus your own type of humor? (sighs) I mean, like... 96% 96% their voice. I feel like that's the job. And like, mm-hmm. that's sort of like one of the joys of writing for TV is like getting to embody someone else's voice. And I mean, I'm, I, I, I like to think I'm adding something of myself for like that. My jokes sound like a certain thing, but it's really like when I'm writing a joke for Alana, it has to sound like Alana mm-hmm. or else it's not going to like get shot. Um, so it really is. And this is like a fun detail about writer's room that I don't think people know, but when you pitch a joke in a writer's room, you do an impression of the actor. Oh really? Which is shocking, but it's like, that's the only way to know that like the joke is actually funny coming out of their mouth. So it's like everyone has an impression of everyone they've ever written for. Oh, which that's is hilarious. Like, 
so bad. And if and if the actors ever heard, I mean, it's like it's so embarrassing at Broad City because the girls are right there. <laughs> so you're just like locked eyes with them doing an impression of them, and it's like if they're in a bad mood, they're probably not going to like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah. Who of all the people that you've had to impersonate then, who are you, who's your best impression? I'm not going to ask you to do it. But... Oh my God. I do a really good Abby. I do a really good Chelsea Peretti. I think I do a really good Andy Samberg. I think I do a great Andre Bauer. <laughs> um, I'm scared of doing Terry Crews because it feels racial. <laughs> uh, Okay, and then Seth would also like to know, mm-hmm. loved Kroll show, any mm-hmm. stand... And by the way, I am really debating the fact that I decided to not make you do any impressions. Oh, my God. You tell me. It's too late. It's too late. Damn it. Because <laughs> I, 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 I know people are going to write in and be like, why didn't you? Okay. Um, it's because you're too nice. I am. Yeah. I could be Howard Stern if I weren't <laughs> yeah, so nice. Yeah, you could me. Uh, okay, loved Kroll show. Any standout stories from the show? Was the merging of the skit universes and spinning others off influenced by Monty Python? Oh, interesting. Um, I don't. I never heard Monty Python as a reference. Um, but our our head writer is on that show is this guy John Levenstein, who's brilliant. Oh, I follow him on Twitter. Yeah, and mm-hmm. he you know he is so funny and he is so particular. And he, it may have been his reference that he didn't share. You know <laughs> what I mean? It, a lot of Kroll Show really lived in John Levenstein's head mm-hmm. in this weird – I always picture it like um, an investigation on a TV show with, like, the red string connecting all these <laughs> right. things. But it was like that's what I, I – that is what Kroll Show was inside this one Looney, Looney Tunes head. <laughs> um, so he may have been a Monty I, – I, I actually don't – I only know Monty Python movies. Mm-hmm. Um and a, only a couple of them, and I love them, but I don't, I'm not like that well enough first to know if that was. I mean, the reference for me as a writer was imagining someone um, having Bravo on, but not changing the channel, <laughs> where it was just sort of like reality show after reality show, where that was sort of like stylistically incestuous. Right. Interesting. Um, and how many seasons of Kroll Show did you write on? I wrote on two of them. My favorite Kroll Show repeating my favorite Kroll show characters were John Daly and Nick Kroll playing the, uh, like douchebags. Rich, Rich dicks. dicks. Yes. Thank yes. you. Oh my God. Rich dicks. Was Aspen and yeah. Names. Oh my God. I don't remember the was name. It, one of them was Aspen. Though, yes, right? And then one of them Aspen. had a oh. female sounding name. Yeah. God, I'm so embarrassed that I can't remember that. But I never, I can, there, the Rich Dick's house was, um, in Reseda. And Mm -hmm. every time I'm on the 101 and I pass it, I think of the Rich Dick's and their house was so crazy and so fun. That was such a fun job. Here's a standout story. Sorry, are are we out of time? No, no, we're good. Okay. Um, my favorite personal story about working at Kroll Show was I had just moved to LA and my office mate was Ron Funches, who's a stand-up comedian, the loveliest guy. He had just moved to LA from Portland also to work on Kroll show and like be a comedian. And one day I got my pot, um, license or whatever. Mm-hmm. It was before it was recreational. And I came into our office and I was like, Ooh, look at this, Ron, look at this. And he was like, Oh man. Oh man. Then the next day he walked in and he pulled something out of his pocket and he was like, Oh, look at this. And it was his pot license. But then he looked at it and he was like, Oh shit. I have, 
I have a lot of marshmallows in my pocket. <laughs> and it was just covered in marshmallows. <laughs> but he was like, that was like his big review. I was like, oh, I got it too. But it was just like this white sticky thing that I couldn't see. I'm like, oh man. This is also amazing that he had marshmallows in his in pocket. pocket. In his pocket. Yes. Yeah, like 10, 10 a.m. at work. <laughs> um, okay, we have some questions from Twitter. Oh, did you ha- do you have their names? I do. It was Aspen. And then the other one is going to be embarrassing for you that you can't pull it. Wendy. You're oh right. my it is god! Wendy. <laughs> I had oh, completely I'm forgotten. so embarrassed. That sucks for me. Uh, I was more of a publicity writer. Let's oh, say that. I love. Oh, and my, Jenny Slate was. Yes, in the, I totally forgot that was my world. about. Yes, yeah. I loved. Maybe publicity and Wheels Ontario. Those were where most of my sketches went. Yes, I wasn't. I didn't have the voice of the rich dicks down. I would say. Mm. I have forgotten about publicity. Yeah, the that funniest. was yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then Wheels Ontario, which was like Degrassi. Had yes. you watched Degrassi? Yeah, my sister was like a crazy Degrassi head for some reason. So I was a little bit familiar and like certainly enough to like um, make made up jokes about Canada. Right. Wasn't there was a character named Spike who had gotten pregnant, right? Yeah. That's all I remember. <laughs> okay, now questions from Twitter. And uh, I'm on Twitter at Allison Rosen. Aaron Jade, does he know how iconic he is? Ah. <gasps> uh. No, I don't, but I'd love to be told constantly. <laughs> right. So I, any sort of daily reminder would be great. <laughs> uh, okay. Kate Cortesi has a question. This is oh, kind of I, a, Nate, I know Kate you Cortesi. You do? Yeah. Okay. This is a bit of a thinker. Okay. When and how did you shift from being taught what your comedy is based on what the industry wants or expects to teaching the industry what your comedy is? Ooh. She's very deep, Kate Cortese. She's actually, I've known her for a very long time. She's also a writer, brilliant woman. Um, I mean, I guess for me, things really changed at Brooklyn Nine-Nine because I was there from the very, very, very beginning. And I, I sort of for the first time saw like jokes that felt very me and jokes that I felt like were coming straight from my soul mm-hmm. being embraced by the other writers. None of whom were, it was also my first time working for people who are not my friends. They were, it was like straight interview, straight show up to work, all strangers. And it, I saw like my sort of take on things being really celebrated there in a way where I wasn't trying to, match Billy's voice or Amy's voice or Nick's voice. I was like, well, we don't know what the sergeant sounds like. What if he was like this or mm-hmm. whatever? And see, and I now, and I, I love the show so much, but I also feel this intense pride when I watch it. Cause I'm like, that's exactly what I, like Andre sounded like when I was there. And I feel like it really got, I felt like I had a little influence there for the first time. Were you there when it got canceled and then uncanceled? No, I was, um, I had moved on to Broad City and Transparent. Mm. I wanted to be more cable-y. <laughs> right. And Why? Why? Um, you know, it's really, I was at Brooklyn Nine-Nine for the first like 70 episodes and on Which like, is how many seasons? That was three seasons. Mm-hmm. So it's like on a cable show, that'd be seven seasons. Yeah. And it would be over. And like, there was just something kind of like nuts about that long season to me. It was like, it took my entire year. Um, and also it's really hard to write for adults who don't curse. Mm. It's just like a very 
silly thing. I, you're writing about like NYPD detectives and they don't curse. It's <laughs> just like, all right. Like I'm kind of out of jokes. After 70 episodes, I felt like I really, I want to write for wackos. I want to write for Abby and Alana who speak the way people speak. Mm-hmm. And I want to write for Transparent because I was obsessed with it. And I wanted to try something dramatic Mm -hmm. and it just seemed like after, yeah, it just seemed like time to move on. But I do think that since Brooklyn nine, nine has been canceled and then picked back up by NBC, I think personally, and I might just be projecting, I think it is funnier than ever. Like, I think that that sort of like near death experience shook up something for them artistically. Mm -hmm. It is like the freedom in it. The, the jokes are outrageously funny again not that they ever really fell off but it was like whatever staleness or whatever sameness there was it seems like they have nothing left to lose and it's Mm -hmm. just like they're just kicking ass like if you're not watching the show now jump back in it is so good um what was working with abby and alana like it was so fun like they're exactly kind of like who you think Mm -hmm. it's interesting I mean, I hope people think of them this way, but they're the, they're the showrunners of that show. And so they're, they have a ton of responsibility and they work harder than anyone else. Um, but they're still them. Did you know them? I knew Alana a little bit because she's got an older brother, my age, Mm -hmm. Elliot, who's an LA comic here, gay guy, really funny. Um, and he and I were sort of like in a similar scene in New York. And then like all of a sudden he had this like tiny little sister who had just graduated (laughs) from college or maybe was still in college and was just funny as hell from the beginning and just wild, like was making her own stuff. And so I sort of like knew her as like my friend's wacko little sister. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's amazing to see how much she has blossomed. Were you on, did you write on the final season? Yeah. The, um, the finale episode, like I still, it was, it was so emotional, but yeah. so, and so well done. That ending is so inspiring. And it, you know, when I started there a couple seasons ago, they were like, and by the way, like we know what our finale is. Oh really? And it was not that. Oh, not even close. <laughs> and it was like, they were like, we know exactly how we want to end this show. And, um, it was so different. And I just think, like, they, I think the sort of, like, if I could, I don't want to speak for them, but it seems like sort of the importance of the show sort of, like, all of a sudden showed up for them, mm-hmm. where it was, like, it was almost they were they were sending a message with that episode, which, you know, the silly idea that they pitched a couple years ago wasn't. It was, like, a very much just, like, a silly, just, Alana and Abby shenanigans or whatever Mm -hmm. but this just felt so like powerful i I loved all the pairs of other women talking and it just was like oh it was beautiful i loved it and it also really captured that um leaving new york yeah and that like catching a cab or just the the light the way the lighting in the like dawn in new york yeah um wait what was their idea that they didn't do it was that, I mean, it was kind of the, I guess the seats are there, um, but it was like a, Abby was going to move away and do like a program, which is like how it's, how it is. And they're going to have like their goodbye. And then it was that a lot, Abby was going to be like on her way somewhere in her new life. And 
Alana was going to show up and be like, I moved too. Oh. Yeah, and totally Abby would different. have to be like, but this is just for like two months <laughs> for me. Like <laughs> I didn't permanently move. And that was going to be like the end. Right. Um, and I think in that version, it was San Francisco. But yeah, it's just like little evolutions make a world of difference Mm -hmm. where it's like, it's actually so nice that Alana stayed. Right. Right. Uh, Tony, do you watch Broad City? I do, but I am admittedly, uh, very behind. Well, we've spoiled it for you now. Yeah. Thanks a lot. (laughs) It still will be amazing when you watch it. And lastly, Millie Jean Warren would like to know, what is your favorite on the job meal? Ooh, my favorite on the job meal. I mean, I love the like, so writers in a writer's room, like eat lunch together, like school kids every day. Um, And it's usually like pretty healthy and like monotonous. Um, But I love, I love like the cheat days when people are like, you know what? Fuck it. Let's get McDonald's. Let's get subs. Let's, that's obviously the best day. So, um, <laughs> all about the bread on Melrose. It's like a big writer's room cheat mm-hmm. because it's right next to M cafe, which is still like vegan and fancy. Mm-hmm. So it's like, there'll be a day uh, almost ever I've written where it's like, today we're doing all about the bread <laughs> and you get a big sub. And, like, what's your go-to all-about-the-bread order? I love anything that's, like, in Philly we would call it an Italian hoagie. Just, like, all the all the pink salty meats mm-hmm. sliced up. And then are you an Italian dressing on that? Or are you, like, mayonnaise I'm, and mustard? I'm a mayo and hot pepper. Mm. And maybe a vinegar. But I don't like a full vinaigrette. I don't like the oil on there. Right. I like the bread to be to have some integrity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I hear that. Um, yeah. I grew up with a pretty clear idea of what hoagies are because okay. my dad uh, went to temple medical school yes. and like it's his, like he's obsessed with hoagie. I don't know if he still is, but <laughs> uh, was always lamenting the fact that first of all, no one knew the term hoagie out right. in California. And also like the closest you could get would be like a grinder or a sub sandwich that wasn't that good. But right. anytime he would get anywhere near what seemed like a hoagie, he would order a bunch of them, but he always ordered them dry. Like if they were, if we were taking them home, we always yeah. ordered them dry. I think because of the integrity of the bread and also yeah. because I think he wanted to put his own, he just want, I don't know if he just put olive oil or dressing, but he definitely didn't want. My parents uh, were mustard. very, Oh, didn't want mustard. My parents were very anti mayo mm. and they had like a real attitude about it. Like it was a Gentile. Oh, interesting. Condiment. Oh, anti mayo across the board. Yeah. Where they were okay. like, well, that's, that's, uh, go- that's for Goyam. <laughs> mayo. It was like, it feels really? it, always. I've never and thought it, of it that way, but it feels like it makes sense. It's kind of, I guess we didn't have a lot of ham, mm-hmm. but like, yeah, uh, mayo is for goyim. So it was like mustard on everything or they would, they would do a vinaigrette. On right. A hoagie. Yeah. yeah. But now that I'm my own man, <laughs> I do mayo <laughs> and then something vinegary, like, like hot peppers. Right. Or hot sauce. Um, I can't believe I'm going to take up time at the end of the show to explain my dad's relation to mustard, but I just don't want it out there that he doesn't like mustard because he does like mustard, very particular with mustard, just doesn't want it on his hoagie. He doesn't, he just doesn't want want it on mine either. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But my husband does. He's a big mustard head. And you're okay with that. Yeah. It's his hoagie. (laughs) It was so nice having you on the show, Gabe. It was great. Thank you so much. Um, And congratulations on Q Force. That's awesome. When might we be able to see that? Animation, 
I mean, I'm writing it right now. I literally think it'll be like a year before it's animated. Mm-hmm. But so a year. 2020. Uh, so everyone <laughs> set crazy. your DVRs for everything. For everything. <laughs> Just record yes. everything beginning a year from now. And congratulations on your puppy. She's super duper cute. I hope that you will uh, fill us in on what she turns out to be. Do you, okay, think, do you imagine you'll tweet it? Well, I'll at least send you a message. Okay. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and then I'll fill you but guys I, in. I'm sure, I'll, I'm sure I'll tweet it. Yeah. But yeah. I'll I mean, depending I'll on the news, I'll definitely let though. you know. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Where can everyone... Uh, tell people where they can find you and plug your stuff. Um, I'm at Gabe Liedman on all social media. I don't really use Facebook, let's be honest. Um, you can... Yeah, look up I'm Afraid That, the podcast. Um, it's only eight episodes so far, but it's really good. Um, and I love you. Yeah. Everyone <laughs> check out. I'm afraid that and now I, f- we, we didn't, we got into so much stuff and we didn't really get into that a lot on the show. Um, but you talk about fears and then you talk to experts. Yes. Yeah. And my husband, Daniel hosts it and he's so, such a good interviewer and it's just really, really interesting topics and really good guests so far. Um, it's awesome. I can't wait to binge listen to it. No yeah. one talked to me for the next <laughs> however many hours I will be listening. Tony, where might we find you? I'm at Tony Thaxton on Twitter and Instagram, TonyThaxton.com. Uh, yeah, that's about it. And I'm going to say, just for him, again, watch Pen15, because oh, that yeah. is my, seriously, my favorite Please comedy in a long 15. time. Yeah, I was sad when I, when I finished the season. Yeah, my I'm wife like, and now I what am I mm-hmm. Now what am I going to watch? <laughs> um, uh, follow me on Twitter and Instagram, at Allison Rosen, and go to my website, AllisonRosen.com. There's, uh, I have a book out, and I have ringtones and t-shirts, and all that stuff is on that website right there. Thank you for listening, everyone. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Alice and Rosen show? 